I was just reminded that uh, we have camp season going on uh, at Covenant Cedars, so if you haven't gone on to the camp, uh, the Covenant Cedars YouTube page, you should after each week and see if you see some familiar faces. I was just talking to one of our campers in the front row who I saw kayaking uh, in last week's, and he was doing a good job. So make sure you look at that and then tell one of the kids that you saw them. That'd be fun for them. Uh, we're going to continue on today in our uh, look at uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Specifically, we're going to looking at King Saul, although we're not going to look at him again today. We're, we're getting to him. We're, we're working our way through 1 Samuel to get to, to King Saul and what we learn about uh, King Saul and what we should take away from uh, those interactions with Israel and with God. But as we begin today, uh, one of the philosophical conundrums that is bothered me in the past is that classic if a tree falls in the forest does it make a sound right and I'm sure we've all heard this question it bothered me for many years it's a question of perception uh, and and the simple answer is no by the way if you're wondering uh, does it make a sound because it, it's not perceived by the human ear that's really why it makes a noise perhaps but not a sound that's simplifying the issue and I'm not a philosopher I'm simply an armchair philosopher and not a good one at that but my understanding is the answer is no it doesn't actually make a sound because there's nothing to hear it, nobody to hear it make that sound. Now, why I bring that up is this morning we're going to be talking about God and God communicating, uh, particularly with Eli and with Samuel. And the question then becomes for us, if God's communicating, which he is, am I hearing it? Am I hearing what God is actually communicating to me? Are my ears clear? Is, is the clutter around me? Uh, thin enough that God can get through that and, and I can receive what God is saying or speaking or communicating in some way. And as we're looking at 1 Samuel, we're going to spend a little time in chapter 3 today, but we'll have to start in chapter 2. So if you're following along, you can just find 1 Samuel chapter 2 to begin with. To remind ourselves where we're at, we're at the end of the period of the judges in Israel's history. This is where it kind of shifts in many ways. And you can see, and Larry will put up here the cycle of the judges uh, for us. Uh, you can see this is what goes on. If you read the book of Judges, this is the key to the whole thing, right? If you look to the right, the people sin, and then God judges the sin. The people cry out for help. God restores. It goes over and over again, and it doesn't always go as quickly as that chart might make it look. It goes for a long time. God is very patient and slow to anger and abounding in love. Sometimes the judgment goes on for a very long time because the sin is great and the discipline needs to go on for a while. But this is still kind of finishing out by the time we get to the book of 1 Samuel. It doesn't, it's not quite fitting this cycle anymore, but, but we're getting there where the people are kind of living in the sin world and the judgment. They're kind of somewhere in there in what's going on in 1 Samuel. And you can see that in what we heard this morning from 1 Samuel 2, uh, where Eli and his two sons, and Eli confronts his two sons, who are, well, let's look at the text. What does the text say in 1 Samuel 2.12? Uh, the, the Pew Bible said evil or wicked. Uh, mine says Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. I personally don't expect to be remembered uh, in this form for years and years to come, cataloged in the annals of history. Um, in fact, I, I'm okay with not ever being cataloged in the annals of history in any great way, other than that I influence lives and I hope 
uh, those who influenced me would be remembered too to some degree, but, but that the memory of Christ goes on and the good news of Christ goes on. But if I were remembered, this is not how I want to be remembered. I don't know about you. I look at this and I think at least I could be Gideon. You know, I have questions at first and let's try this three, four times. And then I trust you, God. Or Paul, for goodness sakes, you know, at least I could have a, a great transition to, but this to be remembered just as wicked men or scoundrels, what a bad legacy. But that's how they come down to us. This is what they chose. And as you look at, at chapter 2, you see that we, we have this custom. And I'm, I'm glad we heard it this morning. There was this custom that they had taken on at, at the house of the Lord in Shiloh, which is where this is all taking place, north of Jerusalem. The custom doesn't appear to be kosher. This is not the law. It's not, you won't find this in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Uh, but they had this custom, whether it's accepted uh, custom or, you know, convenient disobedience, I don't know. But they would put the pot in, in a meat that was brought to sacrifice, part of that went into a pot, three-pronged fork, poked into it, whatever the priest got out is what they could eat. The idea of that is not against the law, and you can read, and I have a ton of references on my notes here if you want those afterwards, of what was allowed by the Levites and priests, they were allotted part of the animals that were given for sacrifice. Because of the 12 tribes, they didn't get their own allotment of land. They were supposed to be taken care of by everybody else. And then they were working on behalf of everybody else as priests. So part of this makes sense. Part of this, we don't know what to make of it with the boiling water and the three-pronged fork. Um, Archaeologists have apparently found three-pronged forks in this area, so we know that this went on. What we do know is that Hophni and Phineas were wicked men. They were scoundrels. And there were at least three offenses. In fact, we read about four, but at least three that are, that are knocked off together. They took more than was allowed for them to take. That's the first thing. Uh, when, when people came with their sacrifices, they're supposed to work on behalf of the people, take the right amount as their allotment, and then the, uh, the part that goes to the Lord is supposed to go to the Lord. Well, they're stealing from God, essentially. Secondly, they ate the fat. The Levitical law said that's God's, not theirs, but they were eating it. And you can see that in the text. And third, they took it by force, which also indicates that they clearly knew what they were doing was wrong. If you won't give it to us the way we want it to, we'll take it from you. And then the fourth offense that we end up reading about later on when, when Eli confronts them is that they're also sleeping with the women at the front of the tent of meeting, which is a no-no as well. All those things are wrong. They're, they're scoundrels. And they know it. They, they know that they're not doing right. And when finally uh, Eli is talking to them, as we heard this morning in 2.25, if you go down there, Eli talks to his sons, and he's highlighting these things, and he says, If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? But do you see the response of his, his son's attitude? It says, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So far had they given themselves over by this point to their ways. God says, Then thy will be done, if that's what you want. If that's what you want, Hophni and Phineas, so be it. And we're reminded that we're in a world where, where even the leaders are doing wrong in this case. Where, as we read last week, the end of Judges tells us that there was no king and everybody did as they saw fit. It's a murky world where right is being called wrong sometimes and wrong is being called right. But we have to remember 
that at times evil may seem to have the upper hand, even in our own world, but we should never confuse sin for righteousness. Never should we confuse right for wrong. They're living in that world, but they still know right and wrong. They're just trying to live a different way, and they're doing wrong. Why is this an issue? Well, these are the priests doing this. These are people who are supposed to go to God on behalf of the people. And I hear this statement in my circles a lot, and it's out there in the business world as well. The speed of the leader is the speed of the team. So if if the leaders in Israel, if the priests are doing this, you've got a problem. And what was God's intent for Israel? Well, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, it'll come up on the screen. God, before giving the Ten Commandments, uh, delivers the word, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A people who are supposed to go to God on behalf of the nations and tell the nations who God is. Show that. Illustrate that. Same thing is supposed to be happening here on a smaller scale within Israel. The priests are going on behalf of the people to the Lord for, for uh, the atonement, for, to take care of sin. They're representing the people before God. But if, if you look at this, you have leaders that are corrupt not righteous. How is that going to affect the people? Negatively is how, right? It's, if we're talking the speed of the leaders, the speed of the team, think about uh, when people drive through bigger cities especially, and people, everybody's going 20 miles over the speed limit, and what do you do? You go 20 miles over the speed limit with everybody. Why? I'm just going at the speed of traffic, right? Otherwise, I'm going to get run over. That's what starts to happen in this environment. If the leaders are corrupt, then how in the world is, am I supposed to make it? Either I have to give in and be corrupt with them or somehow bend the law or something. If I'm going to be able to succeed, we start to think that. But that's wrong. They're leading the people astray in the process of this too. They're just contributing to the problem. And so we have to recognize, and this will be a theme that we see in First Samuel. It's still a theme today that disobedience is costly, but obedience is rewarded. Obedience is really the path to God, as it turns out. Disobedience is costly. Obedience is rewarded. And, and we're kind of at that, that judgment cycle that we saw. We're, we're nearing the bottom of that. And if you look at our, our key text then, uh, 1 Samuel three eleven through 14, you get to, to this moment where Eli is going to be told again, this message from the Lord, that his sons are scoundrels and, and God is putting an end to it. And what's happened up until this point, uh, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord, and now he's being raised essentially by Eli. His mother Hannah is still involved. She's bringing clothes to him and, and visiting him regularly. But largely, he's now an apprentice as a priest under Eli. Eli, the father of Phineas, Hophni, and Phineas, who are scoundrels. Samuel's probably about 12-ish, give or take, at this stage when we're reading this. And, and in the one night, they go to lay down uh, to go to sleep. And as they're laying there, Samuel hears his name called. He runs to Eli. What is it, my master? What is it, my lord? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Second time, he walks over to Eli after he hears Samuel. I didn't call you, Samuel. Go back and lay down. Third time. This is how it plays out at my house, by the way, at bedtime, too. The third time. Why are you out here? We put you to bed hours ago. The third time, he comes over. And then Eli realizes, aha, this is the Lord calling. 
So go back and lay down, he says. And when God calls, say, speak, for your servant is listening. And so God calls him, Samuel, Samuel. And we start at verse 11 after Samuel says, speak, for your servant is listening. And it says, and the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Dwell on that for a while. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Disobedience is costly. Obedience is rewarded. The, the problem at the time is that because of that disobedience that's going on and people doing as they saw fit, we see the other problem that's at play. In 1 Samuel 3.1, it tells us why what happens here is so important. The word of the Lord coming to Samuel. Because 1 Samuel 3.1 says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. The people weren't even able to hear God in that time. Now, the, the idea that disobedience is costly, obedience uh, is rewarded, uh, seems like it's counterintuitive uh, in our day and age because it seems like sometimes people's disobedience does seem to get rewarded, doesn't it? And obedience seems to get punished from time to time. It seems like uh, that's the case, and Jesus actually clues us in that sometimes that is going to appear to be the case. This isn't karma by the way. That's not what Jesus ever proposes. When you read what Jesus says, he says the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked alike, doesn't it? It does. Sometimes it seems unfair. It falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. But that doesn't mean right is wrong and wrong is right. It doesn't mean things have gone the opposite. It means God's time frame is a little longer than we might like in how he deals with this. Jesus also, in the New Testament, one of his great parables, when he's talking about the kingdom, he says uh, there was a, a farmer who sowed the wheat in the field, and somebody came and threw a bunch of weeds in the field. And what does the farmer say? Wait until they grow up taller so we can distinguish the two, so that we don't disturb the good from the bad and ruin the good in taking out the bad. We still know that we, even though the obedience is going to be rewarded on our part, we're living in a world of weeds sometimes. It's going to be difficult. Sometimes it's going to look like disobedience is rewarded and obedience is costly. And God still speaks today to us. God communicates to us so that we can be obedient and God honors and recognizes our obedience today. Jesus himself even reiterates that if you love me you're going to obey what I command. That obedience matters to God. And we see that theme coming out here in 1 Samuel. Now, in our, our look at 1 Samuel, one person we're not going to look at is uh, much is King David. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on him. King David is one of those, again, who comes down to us from history and is famous for an awful lot of things, but there's one that he's famous for that I wouldn't want to be famous for. That's the affair with Bathsheba, and then sending Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, uh, to his death. But if you know that story and you know what comes after, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, imagine, if you will, David, that there is a, uh, a rich man who has an awful lot of sheep at his disposal and a friend comes to town. 
And he wants to have a feast for the friend. He goes to the poorest man in town who's been raising this little sheep from when he was a lamb. And it's his treasured possession. And the rich man says, I'm going to take that man's sheep and serve it because I don't want to use one of my own. And uh, Nathan tells the story to David who says, that man should be punished, right? To the full extent of the law. Throw the book at him. And that's when Nathan says, you're that man. He points the finger right back at him saying, you've done this, King David. As I was looking at this this week where Eli has delivered this message twice about his sons and their issues and the fact that Eli doesn't address it, it is very easy to make the assumption as we put ourselves into the text to try and see what we can learn from it and live the story along with them to assume that I am Samuel in this story. So my caution right now is as we consider this, don't necessarily assume that you're Samuel in this story. I, in fact felt as I went through it further, I wonder if I resonate with Eli a little bit more. I wonder if I sometimes have Eli's problems of hearing more than I have Samuel's issue of obedience. I I do consider myself obedient. I'm always working towards that, but sometimes the hearing is just clogged. I don't know about you when it comes to what God is calling. We need to get out our divine Q-tips and clear out our ears, I think, and hearing God is important. Hearing God matters, but can I tell you what's more important? Responding. Responding when we actually hear. And we need to figure out how it is that we can clear and then be able to respond. Clear our hearing and respond. Eli has to be given the message twice. Right? It's a done deal, but he has to be given the message twice before he's fully able to respond for whatever reason. He he doesn't really do what he needs to do that first time around. And I was thinking about our ability to hear God uh, this week, and I was, uh, a fact came up, and so I looked at it a little further. If, uh, if a person watches the average amount of TV that an American watches on a daily basis, which is four hours, that means you're subjected to one hour per day of commercials. Now, that's not Netflix. That's just regular TV. That's an average of four years over your lifetime that you're watching commercials. Four years of your life go to commercials. And then you compound that with the news that we watch or read and everything else that we read and consume on a regular basis that's coming in and we're giving a hearing quite often in our lives, aren't we? And it's shaping us in our lives. Sometimes it even clouds our judgment from what God could be speaking to us. That doesn't mean all those things are bad, but sometimes there's so much of it that we're not clearing the way for God to speak into our lives. Or there's so much there's so much of it that shapes us that when we hear the word of the Lord, we say, yeah, but I don't want to do that because these other things seem more enticing to me. Imagine all the things that preach at us on a weekly and daily basis shape us, whether we want to admit it or not. And the question becomes, how do we clear our ears so we can hear God? How do we gain the ability to respond to God? And really, when you get down to it, it goes back to some of the real basics. Because God is still communicating with us today. It's not a mystery that God is communicating. And and the Bible is God's direct communication to you. It is, in fact, for you and me to devote ourselves to Scripture so that we can hear from God. I've worked hard over the years to devote time in the morning so that I can devote that time to one to three chapters of reading scripture a day as my minimum. 
right? As the set thing, I start the day, I'm eating breakfast, I do that, I use a reading plan, I do it on my phone because it's right there every day. I can do it uh, with one hand while I eat with the other hand, and I can, I can read and I can digest scripture uh, as I literally digest food. It's a great way to start the day. But I've set the time aside to do it. It took me a long time to get there, but I've set the time aside to do it. And quite often, sometimes we don't set that time aside. We'll set time aside for all kinds of other things that will speak into our lives, but not that. And as we read, uh, it's it's important to, to allow Scripture to pour over us, not for us to simply master the text. Sometimes we, we do set aside the time, but all we do is study Scripture and not just read it for the sake of reading it so that it can, it can begin to, to influence us in a way. We want to study it so we master it. That's important. Do that. As you read it devotionally, mark the things you want to investigate, but start first by just reading it, living with the text, allowing it to speak into your life. And by doing so, we seek clarity in what God is communicating to us. And I would suggest, and this is something I, I've added this week uh, and would like to add going forward, God is already in the business of communicating with us. With Samuel, if you notice, he initiated the communication. And what is Samuel told to do? Say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. What would happen if that's our prayer before we start reading scripture? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I'm going to open this thing up. I'm going to start reading it, but I'm not going to master it. I'm going to let it master me. I'm going to let your words speak into my life and shape who I am. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I recently re, uh, reworked my schedule for what I do on a, a typical weekly basis because I'm trying to be better at evangelism, and so I want to make sure I do everything I need to do, and that's part of what I need to do. That includes evangelism. But one thing I made sure I added, I already pray as a regular uh, a fixture of my life, but I wanted to pray more in the week, and so I, I redid my schedule so I'd pray after lunch each day, and I've realized how much we are creatures of habit. That's been a hard thing to implement for whatever reason because I'm so used to my schedule. Changing it is taking time. But it, it reiterates the fact that we can also let this word speak into our lives and we can know a lot about God. But the other component that matters, that mattered to Samuel, he, he actually had to allow himself to be able to hear God and communicate with God, is that we don't just want to know about God, we want to know God. We want to actually know God and pray for relationship is what we need to do. That's the goal when we go to God in prayer is that we would actually be closer to God, not simply check off the things on the list of the things we need from God. We pray for relationship. And, and to, to drive home the point here, um, Hophni, and, Hophni and Phineas, they knew about God as you read the text. They knew what they were supposed to do. That's how they knew they could get away with doing other things instead of what they were supposed to do. And and they functioned like too many of us can easily function when it comes to kind of skirting the rules a little bit and what God would have of us. In the absence of a physical lightning bolt coming to get them, they assumed that God didn't care or wasn't going to act on their disobedience. Right? So they're seeing their disobedience as rewarding. 
because it wasn't immediately shot down. Now, there are moments in Scripture where, where we see that things that aren't supposed to happen are immediately taken care of. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant at one point is, is kind of tipping, and somebody who wasn't supposed to touch it touched it. Boom, they're gone. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about a few things in the New Testament. They're gone. They died right on the spot. But for most of us, what actually is occurring when we're, when we're not even just not connecting with God, but, but, but we're, we're kind of not doing that part, is we're, we're actively choosing not the way of life, but the alternate. We're fading away from God. God's calling us to choose life, to choose his presence. He's the granter of life, the giver of life. And he says, if you want that life to continue, I'm the only way that's going to happen from now to eternity. Join now in that life. The alternative is that we're fading away from that life. When we're not growing in that relationship and we're not grasping hold of that redemption we're given through Jesus Christ. Those are really the two directions. There isn't, isn't another direction beyond that. So we need to devote time not simply to God's communication with us through Scripture, but to call upon the Lord. Say, not just speak, Lord, your servant is listening to Scripture. That's good. But speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I want to know and do that as a daily regimen, a regular regimen of prayer. To praise God by name, if that's how you want to start. That's a great way to start. Or to just ask God, God, can I experience your presence right now? And stop and just wait on the Lord. Or you can connect with the scripture you're reading. A couple weeks ago we talked about Psalm 8. That's a great prayer. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the beginning of a prayer. It doesn't just have to be a psalm. We can do all kinds of things to begin to connect with God. But the, the most important thing is to set aside the time to actually do it with these things. And the third thing I, I wanted to point out, doesn't need to be a long point, but I just wanted to say that my obedience and your obedience to God, that can affect the salvation of others. There's an evangelistic element to this. Just if you consider Eli ignored evil... And if you also notice, two people had to deliver the message to Eli before he got it. Two people. One was a kid. Isn't that interesting? Eli is old and wise, a priest of Israel. He is supposed to be doing his job and supposed to be seasoned at this. He's not an apprentice like Samuel is. Samuel is the apprentice. Samuel is the one who's given this dream or vision from God, basically, to deliver this message to Eli that, by the way, Eli, your line's about to be cut off. Your sons are going to be killed on the same day, and so are you actually going to end that way, too. The poor little 12-year-old boy. What pressure must Samuel have felt? Because he doesn't want to tell Eli. And Eli's the one who says, look, whatever the Lord has said, he even takes a vow. You better tell me or else. How nerve-wracking for Samuel. How selfish for Eli, huh? That he would have to go to that point. Being in tune with God leads to obedience I want to point out that when I say obedience, I don't mean we're saved by works. I mean, this is a response to God's work in you. But when we live obediently as a response to God's work in our lives, when we hear and respond to God's work going on in our lives, you reveal the reality of the kingdom of God to others. And consequently, when we don't respond, we reveal a different reality. The kingdom doesn't have a hold here, like I thought. 
No, we're revealing the reality of the kingdom of God, of what God has done, of God's redemption in our lives by living into obedience. Think about, here's a good New Testament example to think about as we round this out this morning. Paul and Silas. When Paul and Silas are arrested in the book of Acts and they go to jail, uh, what do you see them doing when they go in there? Well, clearly they start complaining and grumbling and they get on Facebook and they give it a one-star review and tell everybody how terrible that prison was, right? No, they sing. They sing. They don't let the attitude that's probably quite present in a dark prison cell in the ancient world take on. Uh, That's not their attitude. They say, instead, there's a joy inside of us. We're going to sing. We're going to bring the level up in this place. Right? They affect the lives of others because of the kingdom reality going on in their lives. So, too, that needs to happen in our lives. We, we put in place the pieces that pull us into God's presence, that give us life. And then we reflect that out to others. And that has an effect. Samuel is uh, elevated through all of this, really. God uses him to be his mouthpiece from this point on, to bring up Israel, that's the hope, to something beyond the days of the judges. That's what he's doing with Samuel. So if you finally go to the end of 1 Samuel 3, starting at 19, it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that is the whole promised land, that's what that means, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That obedience was, in fact, rewarded. He had to walk the path. He had to stay with God. Am I hearing what God is communicating? That's the question that we need to to, uh, end with here today. Samuel was able to hear. It took him a little bit to figure out, to get in tune. He wasn't sure what he was hearing first, but when he heard, he was finally able to respond. Am I able to hear like that? Am I in tune enough with the voice of God? Am I setting myself up so I can actually hear and then respond to what God is saying? Let's pray. God, may we be set up to hear and respond to you, your good news to us. And furthermore, may we uh, sit in your presence and be able to hear your voice, be able to have your word wash over us and change who we are from the inside out. So that when we go out and go away from your word, your presence is with us, and we are bringers of life, not death, where we go. We are bringers of your kingdom out in the world. That we truly show your spirit of truth in the world, that right is right and wrong is wrong, but we do it with grace and love. God, may we be the messengers of your kingdom this morning, hearing you clearly decluttering our lives so that we can make way for your presence, so that we're not blocking you out just by our busyness, but we're intentionally seeking you in all of our ways. Let us hear your voice this morning, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.